while Queen Elizabeth uh, was still alive. She was up in the summer on vacation, uh, kind of out, kind of house out in the country, kind of up by Scotland. And her and her royal bodyguard were out kind of just walking around through the hills and everything. And a couple of American tourists happened to come along and ran into them and, you know, began, began to chat back and forth, you know, telling them where they're from and where they're going and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And the whole time they never really knew that they were talking to Queen Elizabeth. They had no idea. And so, you know, they're talking back and forth and everything. And, and then finally it gets to the point where they, they ask her, well, you know, where are you from? She says, oh, I live in London, but I have, a, I have a vacation house here just over the hills over there. Like, oh, that's great. How long have you been coming here to vacation? And she says, oh, ever since I was a little girl. So it's been about 80 years now. Wow, 80 years. And you can see the wheels begin to turn like, well, if you've been coming here for 80-some years, surely you've met the queen, right? <laughs> and you know, she kind of keeps playing along with it, and she says, well, you know, I haven't ever met her, but Richard here, pointing to her bodyguard, he, he meets her regularly. Like, wow, you meet with the queen regularly? What, what is she like? And he's like, well, uh, she's a bit cantankerous, I have to say, but she has a great sense of humor. And, you know, before he knows it, they, they've got their arms around his shoulder, and they're handing the queen their camera, like, hey, can you take our picture? <laughs> so she, she says back, and she takes a picture, and then Richard's like, well, why don't I get a picture of you with her? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. They take a picture and everything. They say goodbye. They, they go their separate ways. And as the queen and her bodyguard are walking along, she says to him, you know, I, I wish I could be a fly on the wall when they get back to America and they're showing their friends their vacation photos and hopefully somebody in the room knows who I am and tells them. Just to think they, they, didn't, they didn't have any idea who the Queen of England was. And our story this morning is actually about two guys walking along, and they don't recognize King Jesus when they meet him. So Luke chapter 24 is where we're going to be. Luke chapter 24, starting with verse 13. Chapter 24 of Luke, verse 13. Now that same day, meaning Sunday, resurrection morning, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked. I mean, you, you, you can get the irony. He's actually the only one in all of Jerusalem who actually knows what's, what's taken place. He just kind of plays, well, what, what things? What are you talking about? Well, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped, we hoped that he was the one going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, 
Some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. There you go. Two disciples, two followers of Jesus, and they're walking home to Emmaus. Maybe because they kind of felt like, well, it's over. We hoped, we hoped Jesus was going to redeem Israel, but I guess he's not the guy, so I guess we're going to go home now. Don't know what else to do. And they can't even recognize Jesus walking next to them. But these disciples, they don't see Jesus all that differently from the crowds. Throughout Luke's gospel, there's, there's been a lot of people who think Jesus is a, he's a great teacher. Man, his, his lessons and his stories, they're just, they're just really impactful. He's a great teacher. There are some people who thought, man, must be a prophet. Guy sent by God. That's what they would have thought. Another group of people thought, man, this guy's powerful. He can do miracles and, and cause wonders. He's got some kind of special gift, some kind of a power. And then there was just a few, just a few who thought, maybe this is the guy that we've been waiting for. Maybe this is the guy who is going to redeem Israel. So I've got to ask you the question, who is Jesus to you? Who is he to you? I mean, maybe, maybe you're here this morning and, you know, you think Jesus, he, he's just a man. Honestly, you're here because it would make someone in your family, somebody drug you here to church with you because you know, okay, it's Easter. They'll be happy if I just go to church at least on Easter. And to be honest, you're, you're just like, okay, I hope the sermon's at least, you know, at least good. Maybe I'll learn a few things, and then he'll be, maybe he'll be short, and we'll get home, and we'll have Easter lunch, because I'm hungry. Hurry up, dude. I get it. I'm excited for Easter dinner, too. Maybe that's why you're here. Maybe you're here because you think, Jesus is a great teacher. I mean, when I listen to the words of Jesus, I'm a better person. I think everybody would be a better person if they just listened to Jesus. And maybe you think, you know, I'd love my kids to go to, go to church at least, at least you know, while they're, while they're in school because that way they get some good moral foundation and they'll, they'll be better at life, they'll be better prepared. And, you know, it's a great teacher, good lessons, good things to learn from. Maybe you think Jesus, well, he's, he's a savior. He came and he, he died for your sins and you're so thankful for that and he, he sacrificed everything for you. But I want to challenge you this morning that that's not all Jesus is. He isn't just a Savior. He didn't just come to die for your sins. That's so important. That's a big part of the story. But there's actually an even bigger story taking place. Jesus actually has a bigger role than just being the Savior and dying for your sins. Because the way you answer this question is going to determine how far along the road you're going to go with Jesus. How committed you're going to be. Because he's just a man at whatever. And if you're a savior, you'll do quite a bit. But actually, if you know who he really is, you'll, you'll do a whole lot more. And so I want to challenge you to, to consider who you think Jesus is. Because in America, we, we love to solve our own problems, don't we? And if I can imagine if you believe there's a heaven and a hell and you're not good enough to get into heaven, well then, I need Jesus. Jesus conveniently solves the problem I can't fix. So you know, you maybe at some point you did what the pastor told you to do. You, you said the words, you came down front, you got baptized, and you're like, all right, cool, check that off, and then you just kind of kept going on with your life. 
Because, hey, problem solved. Jesus dealt with my sins. I can't do that. I know I can't do that. He fixes it. Great. Now I, I can move on. I can handle everything else. I just needed Jesus to conveniently handle this part over here. But he's actually so much more than that. Because what those two disciples say is what we thought, we really hoped he was going to redeem Israel. And they were right. Because throughout the Gospels, part of the confusion, part of the back and forth, part of the questions people have about Jesus is he sort of kind of fits their pre-built categories, but he also doesn't fit them at the exact same time. So he fits some of the things they're looking for, but not totally. And so they begin to ask questions because they think, well, isn't the Messiah supposed to do this, this, and this? And he's like, well, not exactly. And the same is true for us. So yeah, Jesus really lived as a human. He was a real person. He was flesh and blood like us. And yes, he was a great teacher. He had incredible things to say, incredible stories, life-changing lessons. And yeah, he absolutely was a savior. And he died for our sins and he changed our eternal destination. But he was actually more than that. You see, Jesus is the one true king who came to redeem everything. He's interested actually in doing a whole lot more than just saving you from your sins. That's so important. But there's actually something even bigger that he's interested in doing. Because even these two disciples, they're thinking, yeah, I thought this was the guy. And Luke puts that in there because they're kind of right. They're kind of right. And so listen to how Jesus responds to them when they say this. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So on their little seven-mile walk, little, little Bible review, little history lesson, he goes through all, all the scriptures, like, like Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, which is usually where you get stuck if you try to read the whole Bible in a year. And if you somehow get through there, then you go to Numbers and you see a bunch of lists, and you're like, oh no, really? He did all of it. Went through the whole thing and showed them how everything that he did is true. Which then begs the question, what does it mean that they hoped he would redeem Israel? What does that have to do with the story? What does that have to do with explaining all the things in the Scripture? What's that got to do with anything? Well, because the gospel story is so much bigger than I think we realize. Because a lot of you, a little Sunday school review. Well, it starts, God creates the world, there's Adam and Eve, they're in a garden, and their job is to represent God to the rest of creation. They're his, his people. He makes them in his image. They're supposed to be like him to the every, everything in creation. So he says, hey, you're supposed to, you know, subdue the earth, you're supposed to rule over it, that's your job. But they listen to Satan as he twists some of God's words and convinced them that instead of doing it God's way, why don't you do it this other way? So they go to the one tree in the garden they're not supposed to eat from, and they eat from it, and sin and death enters the picture, and so God casts them out of the Garden of Eden. And then generations later, God finds a man named Abraham, and he decides, okay, Abraham, let's try this again. You're going to be my representative to the nations. You're going to be a blessing. And Abraham's like, well, I'm, just me and my wife, how are we going to do that? He says, well, don't worry, Abraham, you're going to have a kid, and someday there's going to be, your family's going to be so big, you won't be able to count them. Like, all right, but we still don't have a kid. 
And so out of Abraham, God calls and raises up a nation called Israel. And Israel is supposed to be God's people to represent him to the nations. They're supposed to be a blessing to the whole world. But if you know the Old Testament, you know, it doesn't go so well. They uh, really struggle with that part. And instead of being a representation of God to the world, they just want to be like the world. And so they fail over and over, and so God sends prophet after prophet and after prophet to try to straighten the path and get them back on track and finally just tell them, okay, fine, this isn't working. So one day there's going to be a Messiah who's going to come, and he, he will fix this. He will be the blessing to the nations that you've all been waiting for. He'll be the guy you were supposed to be. And so God decides, well, let's, I'll go down there myself. So he sends his son Jesus, he comes to earth, and he is the blessing to the nations. He's the one who succeeds where Israel fails. He is obedient where Israel was disobedient. And he begins to teach people what it's like when God is in charge. What would it be like if God was the king instead of the Roman emperor or any other world leader? What would it be like if we lived a different kind of way? And he begins to lay that out for everybody. And yes, he, he goes to the cross and he dies for our sins because that's a huge problem. We've got to solve that problem. But just like those two disciples, one of their boxes for Jesus is he's going to redeem all of Israel. And he absolutely does that. Because the problem is Israel's supposed to be the blessing of the nations and they fail. So Jesus comes and he's the ultimate blessing for all the nations. He completes their story. But if you notice, the Gospels don't just end at the resurrection. Right? Like they, they don't end, and Jesus rose from the grave and everyone lived happily ever after. The end. I mean, Mark kind of sort of does that, but he kind of leaves you with a cliffhanger to make you, to kind of interestingly try to draw you into the story. All the other Gospels, what happens? Well, Jesus comes back, and he meets with his disciples, and he, he talks with them because, guess what? They feel pretty guilty because they weren't there at the end. They all kind of ran and hid. Peter feels real, really ashamed because he denied Jesus three different times. And they have questions. They don't quite understand it. They're a little confused. And so he comes back, and he recommissions them. He reminds them they're still his friends. They're still his followers. He's still Jesus. And then he gives them something to do. He doesn't say, well, I did it. Sins are paid for. See you guys. He says, no, I've got something I need you to do. Because the story isn't over. And so in the same way, just like these two guys on the Emmaus Road, you thought, well, Jesus came to die for my sins. That's a, that's a great thing. I'm not diminishing that. But he wants to do so much more. He's interested in redeeming you. He's interested in, in repairing all of your brokenness. He's interested in wiping every tear from your eye. He's interested in taking you from being self-centered and making you a servant. He's interested in making, taking you from being prideful to being humble. He wants to redeem and transform every single part of your life. All of it. And just like he wants to do that each of us individually, he wants to do that for the whole world. So he brings his disciples back together. He answers their questions. He tells them, hey, I, I know you feel bad that you've kind of ran off. You've deserted me. You haven't been so faithful, but it's okay. And here's where the story turns the page. Because just like Abraham, 
and God used Abraham to bring up his people, the nation of Israel. God uses Jesus to call his people, called the church. And he says, all right, church, you're going to be my representatives to the world. Peter writes in his letters, you're going to be like a, like a royal priesthood. And so the church then stands before the whole world to be the blessing to the nations and say, this is what God is like. This is what it's like when he's in charge. This is what the world could be like if you submitted to him as the king. And so the disciples, they have these, they have these categories, but they're a bit confused, and Jesus puts it all back together for them. Here's the last thing that Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke. He comes back to his disciples and he says, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead, and on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And so Jesus gives this mission to the disciples. They're now going to be God's people to the nations. The church is now going to have this, this role, this job, because this is actually the plan all along. And so Luke just makes sure we hear that Jesus said, you're going to tell this to not just Israel, all nations. You're going to go tell everybody about this. You're going to tell everybody that they have been saved, that they can repent, they have been redeemed. And that becomes the mission. And so it's so much bigger than just us being saved from our sins. It's God wants to change the entire world. And he wants to use us to get to be a part of it. And so understanding the difference of Jesus' identity from, from just a savior to the king who redeems everything is, is the difference between like watching a movie and getting to be in the movie. Here, here's what I mean by that. When you, you know, when you watch a movie, it's sort of like you say, well, okay, Jesus died for my sins. I just get to receive that. He's already, for, he's already forgiven me. I just have to accept that forgiveness. So it's kind of like it's just something that you watch. You watch it play out. And it's like, that was so cool. That was awesome. But if that's your view, then what can begin to happen is you, you kind of can see church like it's an event. Like, it's going to happen whether I'm there or not, so it doesn't really matter if I'm there. And you're just kind of watching. You're a bystander. And so... You know, church attendance doesn't really matter. Getting involved doesn't really matter. Discipleship doesn't really matter. Because Jesus fixed my problem. I'm just, I'm just watching it. That's fine. And, you know, and so, all right, get dressed up, go to church on Easter and Christmas, because that's what you're supposed to do. Or maybe you come for your once while, because you start to feel a little, a little guilty, like, oh, I haven't really been in church in a while. Maybe I should go back, you know, or, or whatever it is. And you just think, that's, that's what this is about. I did the thing, but that's what the pastor told me to do. So I guess I show up every once in a while, maybe. But the difference of knowing that Jesus is the one true king is he wants you to be in the movie. He's not saying, hey, just sit there and, and relax and watch. He's saying, hey, come be a part of this. Come see what's going on. Because I want you to be part of my job of blessing the nations. I mean, just, I don't know. I mean, think of your favorite movie. There, some of the best movies, they have this scene that just make you want to like, yes, I want to be there. I don't know, like, maybe, I don't know, maybe it was, uh, 
a packed movie theater on opening night of Avengers Endgame, and it was a movie series you've been waiting 10 plus years to see the conclusion to. And you and your friends bought tickets months in advance, and you traveled to a bigger, nicer theater. I don't know, something like that maybe, I don't know. And then you get to that end scene, and all the portals start to open up, like, oh my goodness, it's literally everybody. And you realize the budget for this movie is crazy, because look at all these actors on screen. And you're like, how cool would it be to be an Avenger and just walk through one of those portals and be like, let's do it, let's, let's win the final battle. Or what would it have been like to be one of the toys that got to help Buzz and Woody make it back across the yard to Andy's house? And no, we helped them get back safely. We helped them get to the moving truck. Or what would it be like to be a player or a coach at T.C. Williams High School and remember the Titans and be like, we were a part of that. What would it be like to be in the mission control room at the end of Apollo 13 when finally the static breaks and say, Houston, we've made it. And you, yes, and all the late nights and figuring out how do we make a square peg fit into a round hole and knowing that you helped get those guys back home alive. What would that be like? I mean, watching the movie is fun, it's really entertaining, but being in the movie, well, that's something worth living for. And so Jesus is the king, he's not just saying, don't worry, just sit there, I got this, you don't have to do anything. He's saying, I want you to be a part of this. There's something incredible going on. And so what we begin to realize is Easter isn't actually the end of the story. Easter is the next chapter. Easter is when the movie ends, and there's that, and you're like, well, let's wait through the credits. I think, I think there's an end scene, and they have an end scene, and you realize, there's going to be another one? What? And so that's exactly what Luke does. After, after this book, you flip the page, oh, Acts, and it picks right up, because there's a mission to do. And when the Gospels end, there's, there's still a bit of your Bible left, because there's, there's work to do. There's a mission to be done. There's people who need to hear the message of Jesus. There's redemption that still needs to be carried out. So let's go back to our two disciples on the road. This is, uh, this is what happens next. In verse 28. So he explains everything to them, and then as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while we talked, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? I can't help but go back to those two tourists. Like They get home and like, you met the queen? Wait, what? That nice old lady was the queen? So, well, when you think about it, there, there did seem something sort of royal about her. I mean, just the way she kind of presented herself. And they look back and they realize, huh, how did, we, how did we miss that? So they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. I just find that fascinating. That in Luke's gospel, the moment they realize who Jesus is is when they sit down at a table to have dinner together. I don't know about a clearer picture of the church than that. Where we come together as God's people and we gather around 
a table. We call that communion. We celebrated that. And somehow God, you know, spiritually in that moment, opened their eyes so they realized, oh my goodness, this is Jesus. But I also can't help but wonder if maybe there was a little cue, something they couldn't deny. I mean, I don't know, you, you go to break bread and you, you reach your arm across the table and your sleeve kind of gets pulled back a little bit, you know? I know in all the artwork, it depicts that the holes in Jesus' hands were in here. Hey, to break it to you, scientists figured out that wouldn't support your weight, so you got to put the nail in your wrist. But I, I don't know, I just can't help but imagine. I wonder if at that moment Jesus reached across the table to hand them a piece of bread and his sleeve kind of got pulled back and they went, what? wait a second. What? And the Holy Spirit flicked on the lights and realized, you're the king. You've been with us this whole time. And here's the thing about church. Is that, I get it. Sometimes there's really important stuff to do, and so church is a little bit on the back burner sometimes. I get it, there's, there's, there's sports, there's a tea time to make, or it's just, Sunday's really your only slow day, so you need to sleep in, you need to rest, you need to get chores done. I get it. But church and following Jesus is a team sport. And some of you have not been to practice in a really long time, and we could really use your help. Because redeeming the whole world, look, Jesus has got it covered, he knows what to do, but at the same time, he really wants you to be a part of it. So you're missing out. And as I was working on this sermon all week, I just couldn't help but think about how many of us don't really realize how powerful he actually is. And we don't really know who he is. And my worst fear is you'll go home today, you'll go have dinner, and you'll be like, well, that, you know, that was great, that was fun, and then I won't see you until this time next year. And it's not because I need you to be here so I can feel good about a crowd. It's because Jesus matters so much. He's so much more to you than I think you realize. And he told the disciples and he tells us, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. There's a job to do. There's a mission. There's more people who need to know about Jesus, who need to be forgiven of their sins. And there's more people who can, who can get to be on this team too. Because the world's not the way it's supposed to be. We know that. And God's working to redeem it, to fix it, to make it all better. And one day it'll get there. But in the meantime, this is our job. We get to help show people the love and the grace and the mercy of God. So this is your opportunity to recognize that Jesus has so much more in, in store for you and in mind for you than you probably think. And it's, it's your choice. You get to watch the movie, or you can be in the movie. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus. And I absolutely thank you that you, that you died for our sins, and that you rose from the grave, and that you sent your Holy Spirit to empower us and to help us do these missions. And I'm so thankful that you promise us that you're going to come back one day 
and you're going to finish the story. And you're going to set everything that's broken, and you're going to set it right. And Jesus, I'm just asking that in the meantime, you would give us that patience and that strength and the courage and the boldness to do your work. That you would help us to continue to remember that that you're seeking and saving the lost and you've passed that on to us. To remind us that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few and we need so many more workers. And God, keep us encouraged, keep us focused on the hope we have in you that we know we win. Because of what you've done on the cross, we've won. We're free. We're forgiven. And so now all that's left to do is to join you in the work. With all this I pray in your son's name. Amen.